Our text this morning is Psalm 4. And unlike Psalm 3, which we looked at last week, but like a lot of other psalms, we don't know much about the background or the original setting of Psalm 4. And in many ways, that's a good thing, because it means the psalm can apply to many situations. And this is part of the universal appeal and the comfort of the psalms throughout the ages. Um, They have a directness and and an immediacy that we seem to be able to access. We see our situation in the mirror of of the psalmist's situation. And so I want to make three points today. They're there in your outline. Call, in verse 1, counsel, verses 2 through 5, and confidence, verses 6 through 8. Call, counsel, and confidence. So first, the call. The psalmist, as is often the case, is in distress. Um, Either from people who have attacked his reputation... Or because his fellow Israelites are, in what appears to be something of a national crisis, turning away from the Lord. Or some combination of those things. Again, it's not real important in a psalm like this that we know exactly why he's in distress. We pick up a few hints from the text, and then we respond to the situation as the Lord applies it to our lives. So, what does the psalmist do here? Well, well, he does what we find throughout the book of Psalms, and he does what we should all instinctively do. And it's very simple. He calls out to God. I mentioned this last week, but we tend to be in distress for many hours and many days and sometimes many weeks and many months before we do this. He calls out to God, and there's a good bit of urgency here. And not only is it urgent when he addresses God, he's bold. He actually issues four commands, four imperatives to God. Notice that. He says, answer me, give me relief, have mercy on me, hear my prayer. So, when the situation warrants it, You dispense with the niceties of prayer. You get right to the business at hand. And you also dispense with the rambling and the pious cliches, as if God needs to be instructed by us. God is a very good theologian. There's no need for us to teach him anything. And so, there's a kind of simple... Brevity, which is the soul of much good prayer. Doesn't mean you can't pray for a sustained period of time. But it means that lots of short prayers in many different situations is probably a better way to go if you had to choose. You shouldn't get discouraged because you can't sit down and pray for 15 minutes. You can read Psalm 6 in about 27 seconds. Lots of short prayers is is a good thing. Jesus gave us the Lord's Prayer as a prayer. It takes about 20 seconds to pray it. Pray lots of short prayers. The church has a whole treasury of what are called collects. Not collects, but collects. 
right? Short little books. We, our opening prayer comes from, out of that collection every day. Often the prayer from illumination is called a collect. It's a short three or four sentence prayer for various situations. You can go online and buy books of them. You should learn a bunch of collects. They're, they're, they're a wonderful way to teach us how to pray. As, of course, are the, the Psalms. So anyway, raw, brief. That's good. So the psalmist pleads. You speak in an imperative mood to God. And there's nothing, there's nothing impious about this. When we're doing this, we're acknowledging our dependence, that we're just creatures, that we're frail, that we're feeble. And that in many situations, we're helpless to change the situation. Prayer is, at its very heart, a sort of acknowledgement of our creatureliness. Of our, it's a kind of self-emptying, is it not, to pray? This is why modern men don't understand it. They have to control everything, and change everything, and transform everything, and grab everything, and restructure everything. But prayer is a reminder of our vaporousness. And so, we can't change many situations. We can't vindicate ourselves. And so, prayer then becomes a challenge. We saw this last week, too. In prayer, you challenge God to act. Challenge Him to act. Often, it's His name that's at stake, not yours. It's His integrity. So, in this type of praying, again, not all the Psalms are this way, but last week's was, this one is. In this type of praying, the psalmist moves from treating God like, you know, a concept. Some prayers, you get the impression that we're treating God as a concept, an abstraction. Here, God is the living God, the seeing God, the acting God. This is why the world is full of deists or theists, people who believe in God in general, who do not pray. But you're not a theist. You believe in a God who lives, who sees, who hears, who speaks, who acts. You believe in an eloquent God. And the Psalms are a reminder of that. A bracing reminder, really, in many ways. Notice here the psalmist, he calls God in the midst of his distress, my righteous God. That's really important in this psalm. Or the God of my righteousness. Whatever the situation is, The psalmist believes he's in the right. This is not self-righteousness. It means that I'm in a jam here. There's a situation I'm in, and I'm right, and my opponents are wrong. And he believes that God is a righteous God, and so he expects the righteous God to act righteously. To render judgment in the situation, and to vindicate him. These are the prayers of distressed people, of the poor and the oppressed. And you cannot pray this way without a certain love for justice. My righteous God. So if if we've accommodated ourselves to the way things are, to the status quo, if we just sort of roll with everything, we're good with the world, the world is good with us, And if deep down we've given up on the very idea that God actually intervenes for the sake of justice and righteousness, well, then you don't pray like this. 
You pray some other way or you don't pray at all. But the psalmist prays like this. Even if you don't tend to naturally pray like this, life has a way of forcing you to pray like this at some point. Eventually, events are going to intervene. And the need for righteous judgment and vindication impinges on your own life. And we find, like the psalmist, that we need relief from our distress. Notice he says that. And the, and the language here means he's in a tight place. He's in a bind or have them, he's pushed up into some kind of a corner by whatever the situation is or the foes are, and he needs relief. Literally, he needs space. He's saying to God, give me some space in the face of these enemies, some stability, some liberty, some ability to move around in this situation which has cramped me and constrained me. I don't have any liberty in it. I don't have any benevolence in it. And so he turns to the Lord and he says, have mercy on me. Or be gracious to me. Even though he knows he's in the right, he knows that if God acts, if God hears him, it is always an act of grace. Even after we've done everything that we've been commanded, we are still unworthy servants. He knows he doesn't merit this. So he asks for mercy, even though he's in the right in the situation. He asks for God to hear his prayer Which means here, give me an audience, a hearing. Respond favorably to me. So that's the petition. That's the first the first thing about prayer is pray. And pray simply. So the second the second thing here is counsel. If you look at Psalm 4, verse 2, he addresses, he addresses those who are opposing them, and he says, How long will you people, or how long, O man, will you turn my glory into shame? How long will you love delusions and seek false gods or, or seek lies? That phrase, how long, is often the cry of a sufferer in the psalm, but here it's used a little differently. So, What's going on, again, is either the psalmist has been falsely accused, or you can see here he's responded to those who are seeking other gods. They're turning his glory into shame. But what he tells them is, look, there is a limit to your evil, because I've invoked the righteous God. There's a sense in which you have to speak that into your situations. There's an end to them. They all will end. And they will end because you've addressed the righteous God. He's telling them that. How long are you going to turn my glory into shame? How long are you going to love delusions and seek false God? You think you're going to love delusions forever? You're not going to love delusions forever. It may appear that my righteous God's justice is sleeping, but it doesn't sleep forever. And so he's saying to his countrymen, he's saying, look, you're trading glory for shame. You're running running after these other gods, whatever they may be, gods of money, fame, power, success. It always, always, always ends badly. That's what he's saying to his countrymen. Our heart is a factory of idols, but evil always eats itself. 
Yes, it can lay barren the landscape. It can scorch the earth of a continent for a hundred years before it burns itself out, but it always ends up burning itself out. And the psalmist is saying something like that to his opponents here. And so he's in distress. He turns to the, to the foes or the situation. He says, how long? How long? You think this is going to go on forever? But he strikes a note of high confidence. You see that in verse 3. He says, no. Here no means, let me be clear on the facts of this case. Know that the Lord has set apart for himself his faithful servant. Faithful servant is literally the godly, the Hasid. He has set, aside, he set apart the Hasid for himself. There's a little bit of a play on words here. The Hasid practice Hesed, which is the, the word used later in the psalm for, for love or covenant love. We've received covenant love and we show it. So God seals the godly, says he sets you apart for himself. What what is the relevance of this in the midst of the situation? The psalmist is saying to his foes, look, God's marking me out. In our case, through baptism. His setting me apart, it transcends all other judgments. That's the decisive judgment. That God sets apart the godly for himself. And notice, notice in the text, God wants you for himself. He's in the midst of this great roiling struggle. And he, and he tells the nation that God desires to be the great passion, the great goal, the great object, the great end of our being. I think it's too quick to rush over this God has set us apart for himself. We're called to living communion. And that means we're called to discourse and reflection and prayer and confession, service, worship of the holy triune God. So right here, the psalmist is saying, look, in the the midst of your distress, if you grasp this one, If you commune with him in the tight places, in the binds, then the victory is already set in motion. It's very simple. But we forget it or we do it very poorly. So the question for us is always this. How can I find God in the midst of this thing? In in the face of this person or this arrangement or this situation? Or this providence. How can it become clear that in it God is setting me apart for himself? God is drawing me to himself through it. Not around it or under it or over it, but right through it. God is seeking then that he become our focus. Not the situation itself, not our foes. He seals us for himself. Now, I think there's a sense in which we would all check the box and say, yes, God sets us apart for himself. But I think we do it sometimes too quickly and perhaps even in a a trivial sense. The the very heart of what we are about is, is contained when we say that God himself 
is the, the great goal and end of our being. You know, I mentioned it to a couple of you. I had a, a sad event happen uh, that I was notified of last week. Um, my favorite living theologian in, in, in Scotland passed away at the all-too-young age of 60. And uh, he's, in my opinion, the, the most extraordinary uh, theologian writing in English today, a, a Brit named John Webster, of some international notoriety if you read theology. And, uh, and so there was a kind of international mourning for Webster. But, but I read him, and I always tell my wife this, I said, when I read Webster, he does something for me that no living person does. And what he does is he cleans off the fog in my soul and he brings me face to face with the being of God. His one great consuming passion was God himself. Webster could talk and write about God with a kind of clarity and humility and piety and never have to refer to creation. And this is what I mean when, when, and what the psalmist means when he says God has set us apart for himself. In other words, Webster reminded me perpetually that is the very being of God. Not what God does for me, not what God wants me to do, not how God relates to my situation, not what God does in creation, not what God does in providence. It's God himself before all things. In other words, Webster reminded me that we could think, that we could talk, that we could pray, that we could confess, that we could be absorbed, enthralled, ravished by God himself and never even have to reference the created order. That's what it means to have God himself as your end. And we usually say it, we check the box and say, yeah, yeah, we got that. Now let's figure out what God wants us to do here. No, 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 a thousand times no. You should be able to have a cup of coffee with a person and talk about nothing but the being and life of God as it is in himself. No reference to anything in the created order. God himself is all glorious. His attributes, his character, his glory, his aseity, his simplicity, his immutability. The Father's eternal generation of the Son. The Spirit's proceeding from the Father and the Son. The communion of life and light and love that is the Holy Trinity. This was Webster's primordial, perpetual passion. And when I read him, he reminded me of just how shrunken my vision of God would become. So I would have to, I would occasionally tell Cheryl, I have to read some Webster. I have to read some Webster. And it's sad, God took him out of the world at 60 But there's a great body of work there. And this line from the psalm, God has set us apart for himself. This is what I mean by saying God is not a concept, some sort of absolute, some sort of thing you start with and then quickly run away from. And and then all the other questions are about, you know, God and me, God and me, God and me, God and me, God and me. No, just God. We'll talk about you later. I mean, we have to talk about us, of course. God acts toward us. He creates. Those are wonderful things as well. But they're grounded. They, they, they obtain a kind of depth because we love God himself. We have one doctrine, beloved. One doctrine. And it's the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. Everything else is in and through and on top of that. So, 
God has set him apart for himself. And the psalmist who asked to be heard, he now tells his opponents, the Lord hears me when I call to him. And he has no evidence for this. He just knows it because he's been embraced in the covenant. He's moved now from pleading to pronouncing. This is not a kind of um, drumming up of enthusiasm to uh, convince yourself that God has heard your prayers, right? This is not some sort of faith and victory kind of thing. This is a simple assurance, even in the face of delay, because God has set his covenant love on you. God hears your prayers, even if the answer is delayed for decades. And now, now the psalmist gives his opponents some advice. It's really a warning. He says, in your anger, don't sin when you're on your beds. So in other words, his opponents are angry about something. And he says, use the night hours, not for sinning, but for meditating. He says, rethink your current course of action. Search your hearts. Be silent. Stop seeking these, these false gods. Stop loving delusions. It's very strong medicine that the psalmist says to his compatriots. It's a form of truth spoken in love for the brethren. He knows we're easily led astray. Our hearts are slippery. Our hearts are deceitful. So, the psalmist says, don't sin and remember, meditate on your bed. Consider your course of action. Then he says, return to kind of rightly ordered public worship. He says, offer the sacrifices of the righteous and trust in the Lord. Trust, the second thing, leads to the first, right worship. So, it's important to see this. Whatever the original setting of the psalm, and this is true with all the psalms as well, the psalm's final setting for us is in the worship of Israel. That's where the psalms were used. They were used in Israel's temple liturgy. And so, the psalmist calls his friends back to worship. If we trust in the Lord from the heart, what will we do? Well, the first thing we'll do is we'll come here. We will offer public sacrifices of praise to the righteous God with the faithful. And that's what he's saying. Offer right sacrifices. Third is confidence. So, the the community's in crisis because, again, of of uh, of a situation that we don't know a lot about, although I'm going to suggest something here in a second. Verse 6. Many, Lord, are asking, who will bring us prosperity? Who will show us any good? So this is is an important clue, especially because in the next line, there's a reference to grain and new wine. And so many think that this is probably a harvest crisis. The crops have failed, and Israel's in the midst of a drought. Now, for us, this, this doesn't hit home, but for ancient people... They worshiped the gods because, among other things, they were thought to bring fertility and fruitfulness and rich harvests. And that seems to, and the gods seem to have failed, including Israel's God. Maybe the Lord is not delivering on the time frame that's wanted. This is why in verse 2, he tells his compatriots, stop seeking false gods. And in verse 5, he reminds them, hey, offer right sacrifices. Don't offer sacrifices to the other gods. Worship Yahweh. 
In other words, he's saying to them, and thus to us, it's easy to give up on God when he delays in answering. But what happens is we don't just give up. We subtly turn to some other source of solace and satisfaction. And that's what's happening here. Waiting is hard. And the people are restless. You know, the people are thinking, we need a religion, a God fit for these times. We need a new modern way of doing church. It's the 21st century, after all. We need to update some beliefs and be more inclusive of these other gods. So the people are in distress, and they're disheartened. The text, who, if anybody, they ask, the text says, you know, if any God, who will help us, who will show us prosperity? If you can provide prosperity and bread, the people will worship you forever. And so the psalmist continues here by turning to the Lord in the midst of this. In spite of his personal enemies and in spite of the tyranny of the the majority, the often wrong majority. It's another thing we often learn from the Psalms. The majority is often wrong, often wrong for a long time. He continues to turn to God. God is a majority of one, always. And, And his prayer here draws from the great ironic benediction of number six. It's a wonderful echo of that. Let the light of your face shine upon us. The psalmist knows that if God, the righteous God, the all-glorious God, the God who in and of himself is our end and our delight and our passion, if that God were to but glance at the situation, but shine the light of his face on us, all would be well. This, by the way, is why the glory of the triune God is an immensely practical doctrine. One sliver of that glory reorders your whole situation and reorients your whole life. And here the psalm turns decisively. You can see it in verse 7, which should be read as, You have filled my heart with joy more than when their grain and new wine abound. God has acted. The psalmist moves in this psalm from distress to joy. The many are disheartened, he is glad. The many are are fixated on the harvest, and he revels in the gift of God's countenance. God himself, again, even apart from what he can or has done for us, is our chief good, our chief joy. And the psalmist somehow has laid hold of this in the midst of the crisis. And that's what leads him to peace. You can see that in verse 8. I will lie down and sleep. Lie down in peace and sleep. The ironic benediction again. The God who lifts up the light of his face upon you gives us peace. The, The opponents, you know how they were told to use their evening? Trembling on their bed. Meditating, searching their hearts. The psalmist says, you guys go in there. Tremble on your beds. Think about what you're doing. I'm going to lay down and go to sleep. I'm going to lay down in peace and have a good night's sleep. And he summarizes the reason for this, again, with simple eloquence. For you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. Again, God alone is the 
is the address in which we live. He's our refuge, our fortress, our high tower, our shield, our place of safety and security. God alone makes us dwell in safety. You can't even keep yourself alive. Forget about the external foes. Here then, in God and in God alone, in the being and life of God, we are, as the hymn puts it, safe and secure from all alarms. Leaning, leaning, leaning on the everlasting arms. You know, this psalm, from the beginning centuries of the church, because of the references to, the, to, to reflecting in bed in verse 4 and to its description of sleep in verse 8, it's been used as an evening prayer in the church. The rule of St. Benedict, for example, from the 6th century, prescribes this psalm, Psalm 4, as the first of a series of psalms to be prayed in the evening. And the reason for that is that the days of those to whom the Lord has been gracious whom he sets apart for himself, are days, they are days spent in battle. And the Psalms are the battle hymns of the faithful. You know, at the time of the Great Reformation in the 16th century, to be called a psalm singer meant you were a Protestant. You were associated with the reform. Singing these psalms was understood to be subversive of the existing order. So our tradition has a long and passionate and affectionate attachment to these songs. They have shaped and they must shape the way we pray and the way we think and the way we praise. And more than that, the psalms are unique in this. We need them in the morning, we need them at midday, and we need this one at evening. Keep this one near your bedside. When we use it, we're just following the the counsel. Let me put this in New Testament terms, now apostolic terms. To pray this psalm is to follow the counsel of Paul, who tells us not to be anxious for anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, to present our requests to God. And Paul says what the psalmist tells us. Then the peace of God, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard or shield your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We have peace on the battlefields of life because God has lifted up his face on us. Paul says, the God who said, the great God who is light, who said, let light shine out of darkness, he has shone forth the light of his glory on you in the face of Jesus. This is what Jesus' appearance means. It means what we see at the end of this psalm. It means God has lifted up the light of his countenance on us all. He has provided for our joy and our prosperity in the midst of drought and delay and difficulty. It means the righteous God has in fact acted, been gracious to us in our distress, given us relief in our binds. And he has set us apart for himself. In short, the appearance of Jesus Christ means that God has heard and he shall hear us when we cry. Amen.